This is the Average Guy Network, and you've found Cyber Frontier show number 40, recorded on November 21st, 2017. Here in Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technologies that are shaping the future, sort of from an academic perspective. It's, Christian, it's been a while. You're it has graduated been. Now. Not like a, a guy reminiscing on academic uh, perspectives, you know? I know. Well, we'll, I'm we'll rattling in my brain, but we'll keep that really? part in there. Why not? Yeah. It's it's been a part of the show. Of course, uh, if you're listening to the show for the first time, uh, this is the first one you've caught. Christian, when we started this this podcast, Christian was a student at the University of Maryland there, College Park. So we put in from an academic perspective. He has since graduated, and uh, Christian, good to see you again. I want to remind everybody that uh, that we have going to have some great show notes available for you if you want to head out to theaverageguy.tv and just click on this one, number 40. Uh, you can find it theaverageguy.tv slash CF040 if you want to get to the show notes. If you got questions, comments, or contributions, you can send me an email. Send it to jim at theaverageguy.tv. You can track down Christian at christian at theaverageguy.tv. You can't find Kevin at kevin at theaverageguy.tv, although, Kevin, maybe we should give you that address. What do you think? I'd be up for that. That'd be fun. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll we'll have to think about that. I don't know if you'd ever get an email there, but but maybe maybe not. I get I get bizarre emails all the time on that account, Jim. Really? So it's quality. Oh yeah. I think they must scrape the account. They must scrape it. I get two or three a week, and uh, they want to sell us all sorts of really cool stuff and uh, articles scrape and. Yo, so you're getting those? You're getting those too, huh? Oh man, oh, like like once a week, and they're getting really good too. I mean, really good. You, you have know. to. I'm not even sure I believe they're like bots at this point. Um, I think they're very smartly targeted things, but um, yeah, they got a nice little CRM system going on. With they do. Our, our hey, bots. we've been watching your blog, or uh, we were listening <laughs> to your podcast, and now we'd like you to. Or a startup. I get those all the time. They're kind of crazy. Hey, we'll remind everyone before we go here that, uh, or before we get started, that uh, that the average guy.tv hosted both media and web hosting by Maple Grove Partners gets secure, reliable, high speed hosting. I'm talking super high speed. Right before the show, Christian, I was updating live.theaverageguy.tv, which is hosted over there at Maple Grove Partners as well. And 4.9 of WordPress is out. Yeah. maybe seven seconds, I think, to update that. It was like, boom, updated and in. I don't know what you and Gary are doing over there, what kind of wizardry you guys are doing at Maple Grove Partners, but holy crap, was it fast. We're we're staying busy. I mean, I go to the homepage Average Guy, and it's like I don't even – I remember the days three, four years ago where we used to wait for that sucker to load, and now you just click stuff and it happens. So uh, this is a long way of saying we must be doing something right. Um, hell, if we know what it is, but um, we certainly God, it is super fast. Put a lot of time Super fast, yeah. yeah. Plans start as little as $10. Uh, if you want to get involved in that, head out to maplegrovepartners.com. Christian loves it when we have folks in our community who join us. We kind of keep it in the family, so to speak. And if you have any questions, maplegrovepartners.com. All right. You heard from Christian. You heard from Kevin. Kevin, welcome to Cyber Frontiers. Great to have you on here. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. Good to see you again. You're a regular guest on Home Gadget Geeks and uh, good to have you on that tonight. We've got some things we're going to talk about. We've been kind of kicking the show around for a couple weeks. Christian couldn't make it one. And then I had a death in the family for the second. And we finally got going here on the 21st, but good to have both of you here. Christian, uh, any updates before we kick this off and get started? Anything you want to talk about? 
Uh, I mean, no, nothing of urgency. We're going to talk about some of the later breaking news that happened a couple hours before recording this show. Um, that's going to make tonight all the more fun. Uh, it's one of those I told you so moments. Um, I want to make sure, uh, Kevin, for people who listen to Cyber Frontiers but not Home Gadget Geeks, do you want to give the, the elevator pitch of uh, my name is Kevin and I'm here because? Oh, yeah. Kevin, introduce yourself. We call it a focus on you at Gallup. What do we, uh, what we focus do we know on about you? you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, long-term IT professional. I've uh, worked in uh, uh, distribution for many, many years. Currently seeking my next endeavor in in uh, those opportunities. Um, pretty much a data center generalist. Have a good background with uh, security and uh, software. Uh, Hyperconverged, converged infrastructure. Uh, have worked in uh, hands-on with a lot of those. Uh, so. You know, I, I guess a lot of cases where we interact is kind of where things jump back and forth of things we see in the enterprise and see in the data center and how those come together in uh, the home or the home user, the home tech enthusiast. So I guess that's where I kind of jump back and forth from a work life to a personal life. Uh, uh, always a uh, tech enthusiast, techie kind of guy. And uh, things pop up and I go, hey, wait a minute we should probably talk about that on Jim's show or uh, we should yeah. probably talk about that with Christian. So that's kind of where this, uh, this one spun up from. Well, we've got a good topic tonight because I've been thinking about this too. You know, Windows always got a bad rap for a lot of malware, for a lot of viruses. And it was, you know, with 1.5 billion implement, you know, uh, instances of Windows out there, it's a big target, right? Mm -hmm. And for the longest time, you know, we uh, the phone ecosystem, both Android and iPhone, has gotten kind of a pass because it was like, oh, no, 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 those don't, they're written differently or whatever, you know, and they don't have viruses. And antivirus stuff for phones was kind of a joke in the early days. You'd put it on, but you never really knew why. You don't hear necessarily about large, you know, breaches from phones. You don't hear people, their phones being stolen and having data on them. And maybe that's because it's the way, the operating system works on a phone, but we just haven't got there. However, with now billions of devices, I think there's, I don't know, some three, four, five billion Android devices out there alone at this point. Um, with that many devices and some people having multiple devices, um, I think it's who's watching us. What's going on on those things? I don't, you know, we, I think as PC enthusiasts, for the longest time, we were crazy about making sure our PCs are locked down, but I don't, I don't hear that going on in the mobile space. So, Kevin, you've got some questions along those those lines as well. Why don't you, why don't you have us jump in a little bit, and uh, you can ask those questions. Christian will jump in. Yeah, you know, and I, I think as you said, some of this stuff has popped up over time. We've all, you know, being Windows centric guys, like you say, I think we've all had come to the conclusion of needing uh, an antivirus or malware to protect ourselves from some of these Trojan horse kind of attacks. Um, but what, you know, flared up, you know, so a few, a few years ago, um, uh, Lenovo had a, a malware bug and it, it was a weird one kind of caught us, you know, from a tech industry point of view off guard, because uh, I, if I'm not mistaken, technically the malware was embedded in the firmware of a Western digital disk drive. And every time it would get cleared off the system, you'd reboot and the firmware and the disk drive would fire up and it would reload the, uh, the malware back onto the PC. 
And so that's where we started running into this. Well, where can these things hide at? And I threw a, a clip in the show notes about, uh, you know, one of the Android uh, things was actually an app uh, called uh, AdUps, I think is what it was called, sort of a data mining tool. And about the time I found this was one where, you know, my wife handed me her Android phone because she was getting lots of, um, she's getting messages from Verizon saying, hey, you're, you're just about over your data limit. And I'm thinking she doesn't use hardly any data. And you, you go to the, you know, data usage by app and here the number one thing that's using data on her phone is actually a file manager. And of course, I forgot to get the name of it. I'll get it here shortly. It's a file manager that I've kind of trusted and, and I find Android to be a little bit irritating of finding files on your phone. And she had a couple that she needed to have good access to on her phone. And I'm, I'm looking at this thinking, well, oh, this is crazy. Why is a file manager using data? How would a file manager use data? Well, here, this thing, I, I did a quick uh, Google search on it and it's downloading uh, advertising content because it's a free tool, but when you install it, it's bringing all these ads down. And of course, then I'm questioning, well, what's coming down with these ads? <laughs> so it's it's a it's a bit of this. You're you know I I think in many ways some of these things that are I'm questioning and concerned about are things we're willingly bringing onto our systems, not realizing or not being totally um, informed on what they do. So kind of kind of stumbled into the whole thing from that point of view. Yeah, so I mean, this is a pretty huge deal because I don't think the average guy realizes point blank that not only are they carrying a computer in their pocket, but it is more than a computer because the types of sensors that you have on your phone are emitting way more data about you than your computer ever did. So arguably, I think when we talk about where where um, hackers are going to spend more time, it's going to be in the domain of mobile devices because they just give you so much more data, so much more fidelity. You're getting location, you're getting billing information. People are doing mobile banking now. Um, every person you know that you're closely in contact with is on your phone. You have your contacts, you have your text messages. It's much more of an intimate device than the desktop computer ever was. And so um, there's a lot of different call out call outs here. And, and I think we're going to break down some of these tonight. And, and one of them really is first, what types of mobile devices are at this higher risk for um, is my phone leaking data about me doing things that I'm not aware of? Uh, so that, that's number one. And that, that really comes down to a permission model. We're going to talk about how the different device manufacturers have worked out the security models and which one over the course of this 10-year experiment of smartphones has proven more successful and why. Um, I think we're also going to end up talking about tonight the hardware implications. So what types of embedded firmware uh, and actual physical hardware are manufacturers choosing and what types of implications do they have on security? Um, the third here is that what is the average guy going to actually do about any of this? So uh, realistically, am I going to expect the average person to know much about their phone security model? No. 
Um, am I going to even expect them to know much about how to find out if they are already in some type of compromising position with their device? Probably not. Um, this is going to be one of the harder problems that we grapple with tonight. Uh, there has been some really interesting research, and this is where I'll pretend to still be an academic at the University of Maryland. I'm not. Uh, however, um, I have papers and some other things that touch back on that point um, and will kind of bring us full circle here. So with the file explorer, I just want to make sure I'm clear and understanding, Kevin. This was an application that was on what type of device and what capabilities did it have in addition to being able to download advertising? Uh, so I found it here. It's uh, ES File Explorer File Manager, which is in, on Android. It's one I'd used on Android for many years. And um, basically it was how I stumbled onto the issue is, you know, my wife started bumping into, um, you know, hitting the limit on her data plan on her phone which then caused me to do a quick Google search. And if you do ES File Explorer File Manager using tons of data, uh, your Google will light up with all kinds of um, uh, points that it, it, it appears to be downloading uh, uh, advertising and background information that then it pops up when you use the app. So, uh, but it certainly seems like it's downloading a lot more data and uh, it seems to be uploading data as well. So I quickly removed it, got rid of it, and basically told everybody I know, don't use that one. And what tools did you use to kind of see the download and upload activity? Uh, the only thing I used there was uh, standard stuff on an Android phone of going into settings and going under data and... Uh, I believe it's under storage. You can go to uh, which applications are using data. To, yep. to just see who the who the major use cases are, and are we talking kilobytes, megabytes? I mean, what was the was there a usage pattern that you noticed? You know, it was uh, on this one. It was like very dormant, hadn't done much, and then it just really ramped up. Uh, you know, megabytes of data over a, a couple of days. Interesting. And were there any recent uh, software upgrades associated with it? Um, not with her app, but the phone had upgraded shortly, uh, before that occurred. Got so it. she had gone through, a, hers is a Samsung, uh, edge seven, and it had gone through a, uh, firmware update, uh, uh, software update shortly before that. Got it. And these are, um, which, what is the physical phone actually? It's an edge seven for yeah. your wife. And then yep. do you have the same phone? No, I have a, uh, LG uh, V20. Got it. And Jim, what are you on for a phone these days? iPhone 6, still. That's right. That's right. So um, there'll, there'll be several listeners that will listen to this segment that I'm about to get into and will laugh and say, I told you so, or I gave you that idea. <laughs> um, but one of the things I want to talk about right off the bat is just um, we're going to talk about two primary markets here, right? We're really the average user, the average guy is care concerned with Android phones, iPhones, right? Those predominantly make the two major markets we're talking about. Androids, I think, are like 70% user adoption at this point. So it is the predominant platform of interest. Mm -hmm. uh, this is especially because budget smartphones, like your non-mainstream phones, like Samsungs or LGs or whatever, they're using the the base Android firmware to basically 
put their phone to market at a cheaper price um, and do some what I call low warranty maintenance on rolling their own firmware for their uh, cheaper device. So Android has a big market there. Um, iPhone, on the other hand, um, has great market penetration, obviously is not the first in the pack, but that's mainly because of pricing considerations, right? It's a, it's, it's seen as a higher end phone. I mean, if we look at the iPhone eight plus and the iPhone 10 or the iPhone X, excuse me, um, we're talking about a retail price tag of up to a thousand dollars per phone. If I had told you that five years ago, um, we weren't seeing prices anywhere close to that. And even for the smartphones that we were seeing at prices at that level, um, they were so heavily subsidized under the two-year agreements to basically be locked into a data plan. Well, all that has really gone away. Um, cell phone carriers have really moved to these um, competitive data plan models where they're not giving you many incentives to buy the device through them anymore. Um, bring your own device has become more popular. So like with anything iPhone 6 or later, you can, you know, move that between carriers, et cetera. So um, with those incentives gone and with the with the equipment that's shipping in these newer iPhones, you're sticking that whole $1,000 price tag for a new phone. Like you're not, you're not getting around that like you used to. Uh, one of the big upsides to that is it's what I call the premium proprietary marketplace. Um, and so, you know, the concept that I was given here is when you really think about the core of the argument, regardless of usability or which user interface you like more, or any of those other things, when we're talking about security and we look at the iPhone versus the Android, which do you trust more? Do you trust more the phone that is proprietary and closed source and that is being paid for at a premium dollar to maintain it as this proprietary premium service? Or do you trust the phone that has an open marketplace for Play Store, has you know different vetting qualifications for what shows up on the Play Store, um, open source, it's Android, it's Linux, it's Java. So it's a huge open source platform to begin with. Um, and you know people can roll their own firmware and root Android devices much more easily than they can jailbreak iPhone devices. So when you ask yourself that question, you probably think, hmm, I, I, would, I would ultimately arrive at the conclusion that I'm going to end up trusting the company that is closed source, is proprietary, and is more protective of users' data, right? By Android or the types of things that Google does, you know, they're making their dollar value based off advertising and basically the data model. What data can I sell about you to different apps, to different providers, to different phone carriers, right? It's a very different model. Whereas if you're paying a provider up front saying, this is my premium dollar for you to run and do this thing in a premium way, they're much less likely to have the need to sell your data to a third party, to resell it, et cetera. So I've kind of come around with this way of thinking um, by virtue of uh, folks in my community waking me up to this, which is, you know, you're always going to get some benefit of having a proprietary device over a open source device. Now, that's all well and good, but keep in mind primary communities and the average price of a phone in which people are willing to pay and this puts us right back into the neck of the woods of 70% of the folks are using Android. They're using open source. They're getting these tablets that have Android on it, et cetera, et cetera. So 
when we look at the success of the two main phone lines over the last five to 10 years, iPhone has really, and correct me if I'm wrong or if you think there is a data point we can point to here, but iPhone has not had the types of major headliner malware or security related issues that Android has had in the last 10 years. And so I think I think what I just described about the nature of the marketplace is the, the nature of which Android is built on a foundational system versus iPhone. They're two very different worlds. Um, and I think we've seen, well, Android has worked really hard at the permission and their security model, ultimately very different from Apple's has a very different level of visibility to hackers or people writing the malware. And so at the end of the day, they have suffered um, several major malware incidents and and types of security flaws that, you know, when someone like you comes along, Kevin, you're like, well, wait a second, how do I really trust this device? So Kevin, why don't you walk us through um, what was the the recent news you had found in the last year about some of these devices with firmware from China and what did you find out about that? Well, it's so in, in to what you were just talking about too, I, I, I tend to agree that I, I, um, I think a closed source, you know, it, it, uh, and calling it by name with, with Apple, I, I want to believe Apple has a more secure model. Um, but I do question from time to time how much they put into their security. Uh, but as you've said, in the Android world, it's the open source world. <clears throat> open source fans would tend to argue that because it's open source, it it can be it can be more secure because you've got more people working on it, more people dealing with it. But at the end of the day, it, it I, I don't want to draw connect uh, you know parallels to things like Linux right. because there are versions of Linux that run in the enterprise and they're hardened yep. and they're designed to be run that way. Yep. Um, nobody takes Android to the point of running it that way. Um, so yeah, yep. kind of to the to the tablet function um, or or you know, just to devices in general. I guess personally, I, I tend to you know, come at this from thinking from, you know, building my own PCs or building my own servers and computers and whatnot is I tend to have my set of folks that I like because they um, build good product, but also they update their firmware, they update their BIOSes. I can tell that the software they're providing, um, you know, they they kick out fixes for things, Uh, networking products with the recent issue with, um, uh, and I just spaced out the name of it with uh, with Wi-Fi with the uh, WPS uh, or WPA uh, bug. Uh, you know, you you could quickly see the Wi-Fi access point folks that got it, took care of it, fixed it real rapidly. So those are the kind of things that I look for because that also tells me if a vendor is that aware of a problem coming up and hitting and fixes it in a timely fashion that, you know, and, and maybe it's a false sense of security, but that does give me a bit of, you know, secure or, or, you know, presence of mind, uh, comfort of mind that they are monitoring these kind of things. They're watching for these kind of things and they, they can respond to them as they, mm-hmm. as they happen. So, um, Probably, you know, I, I haven't seen personal cases of it, but it is these types of things where if people want to do bad things, they can bury code and firmware, they can bury things in places that we normally wouldn't find. And and of course, then that leads into the question of, 
um, how would you monitor for these things? How would you look for these things? And as to what you said a few minutes ago, um, does the average person need to do that? Or, you know, maybe it's a heck of a business opportunity for somebody to, uh, you know, jump into um, some form of monitoring in, in router protocols that help people uh, at least point to people saying, Hey, there's something in your house that's uh, sending yeah. stuff to a place. I don't think you want people sending stuff to. So. Right. And I mean, the types of places, so, so a couple of things here. Um, number one, when we think about these types of devices and the software, again, predominantly being Android is where I'm going to focus on now. Um, they expose very different things to the developer than what Android exposes, or that, excuse me, than what Apple exposes to the developer, right? So with Android, you have a lot of ability to request very specific permission models, uh, either fine grain or granular. Um, you have the ability to request UI hooks, activity lifecycle, like there's a lot more um, control. And this is part of like what, what you're saying with the open source here, I agree with, like there are, there are software programs and enterprise versions of open source that are secure because there's the right staffing, the right focus on it, et cetera. And let me be clear, I'm not, I'm not trying to make the argument that Apple and iPhone is security through obscurity um, because, mm -hmm. again, they're very different models. There's a difference between obscuring what your device is doing and not allowing the user to do certain things, right? So Android is not only... Um, open source, but it it gives you the ability to hook into things that iPhone may not allow you to do to the same extent. So a perfect example um, that illustrates the real concern you're bringing up here is one of the presentations that was done at Black Hat this summer. And um, I went to DEF CON, I didn't go to the Black Hat conference, but they run, so Black Hat's like the enterprise equivalent, it runs right before DEF CON out in Vegas. And one of the really shocking disclosures was um, a research on a, they coined the malware, basically it was called cloak and dagger. And it's a class of potential attacks and attack vectors that exist in Android devices that allow a malicious app to completely control the UI um, API and interface of the device. So because it's taking advantage of these UI hooks, um, and using that as, as its ability to kind of escalate itself into the system, it is able to install itself on the device and become malicious without a user ever noticing that A, they've been attacked, or B, that something is running. And at the time they disclosed this, this affected all recent Android versions up through Android 7. So it wasn't like it was just something with a legacy permissions model or so forth. Like a Android has gone through several kind of iterations of um, re-baselining their permissions and how applications request those permissions. And so what was found here with the Android device is that... Um, they only needed two permissions and they were they were very strange um, UI hooks. One was a system alert window and one was bind accessibility service. And so if you go to cloak-and-dagger.org, you can see all the papers and the demos and the associated press around this. 
but this is one of the really modern day examples of what happens when you have kind of the open source, open hook, open permission model. And it's not a resolved issue. Like this, this is a recent one that illustrates kind of the same um, use case you originally brought up, which is back in 2016, about 700 million Android devices were reported to come pre-installed with malware. And everyone said, well, how can that be? Combination of how the firmware is rolled, what type of hardware is being issued, et cetera. Um, and so to cut to the crux of the issue here, one thing that is a particular concern on the Android model is A, these open hooks and the way in which applications request permissions is inherently different. But think about some of the usability and capability of what you get on Android versus iPhone, right? Like with Android, you can put widgets on any screen. You can customize a lot of those UI elements. You can do a lot of things that when you get an iPhone, the widgets are predefined on one screen, very specific specification for how those widgets are to be implemented. Um, that's where they live, right? And it uses a very specific thing. So the UI flexibility that you have in Android is far greater than the UI flexibility that's available in iPhone. And some people see this as a feature, right? They want their, their phone to have their icons exactly where they want them, their widgets to have them exactly where they want them, et cetera. But that comes at a price of what is the underlying permission model that allows that UI to be that flexible for the types of applications and permissions that are getting installed. Um, and some of the research that has been done at the University of Maryland actually focuses on this concept in Android called app collusion. So the app collusion theory basically states as someone trying to craft malware on the Android platform, if I want to take over a user's device without them knowing, one of the easiest ways I can do that is by taking advantage of what applications are already installed on that phone. So when you install an application that you trust, whether it's Skype or email or whatever, um, each of these applications have to individually request their own permission sets with the operating system. Like, do you want to allow a camera? Do you want to allow a file system? Um, do you want to allow um, access to your GPS or to your location, right? So each of the applications you have request a very different level of permissions. Some of these are kind of what we call soft permissions, meaning the application doesn't explicitly have to ask you, the user, to get the permission that it's granted. Um, a good example of this, I think, go back and check the API documentation if I'm wrong, is like if you want to get the system time or control time zone, that's a soft level permission as opposed to a hard level position of like, I want your GPS or I want access to your um, file system that's not part of temporary storage. And so the idea of app collusion theory is that if I already have applications on this phone that have requested certain types of data or things that I want, such as your GPS, your internet connection, et cetera, then I, as this third party malicious app, want to look for what APIs or things exist within that application that has already requested permissions that I can piggyback off of to get the data that I want sent back and phoned home. Um, this might be a multi-pronged approach. So maybe it's not even that you assume that the application is going to be on the phone, but you're, as a, as a malware guy, 
you're trying to embed that one little permission piece spread out in a suite of applications that a user is likely to use, right? Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, let's say you embed different pieces of malware into 10 or 12 different system or 10 or 12 different apps on Android and two out of the 12 is something a user is interested in and ends up installing. Well, from Google's perspective, when they review and vet that app on the Play Store, they're not going to say, oh, we see all these really risky permissions you're requesting. Why are you requesting them? They're going to see, oh, you request a bunch of minor things and one major thing. And we see the explanation for why you requested that one major thing. And then they get a different application for a different type of use case. And it's a different, you know, one set of major permission with a bunch of minor permissions. And app collusion theory states that over time, as these types of applications grow and manifest on your phone, um, apps will eventually have the ability to collude and share the permissions they've gained in order for a malicious user to basically take advantage of the phone in a way that you, the user, A, never expected or authorized, but B, you wouldn't notice it because you're installing these apps incrementally or over longer periods of time. You're not necessarily just one and done installing a bunch of stuff at once, although that's possible. Um, so these are the very types of sneaky way and what seems like a very secure permission model initially can quickly become a very kind of slippery slope. And we're only talking about the software model, right? We're not even really talking about the hardware model. But right. again, look at iPhone. iPhone is a closed hardware model. Who's building it? Apple. You're not selling it to your to your LG, to your Samsung, to your et cetera, they own and control the device end-to-end, -end, meaning they control the firmware, they control the hardware, they control the software, they control the operating system. And I think you would notice there's a different bar for like getting an app on an iTunes store versus getting it on a Play Store. Google has done a lot to work on improving their vetting process, um, but it just goes to show that this stuff slips in and it slips in fast. Mm -hmm. And I don't think um, like th the average guy, A, doesn't have a situational awareness about that. I think they're much more focused on price than they are on um, the usability. But the reality is, you know, in answer to your first question, um, are there, is it potential that my device is, is gathering or sending data that I, that I don't want or that I didn't authorize? Absolutely. Um, in fact, I think there's a higher probability that it's doing it on Android than it is on iPhone. So like I've, I've been carrying this around for the last two years. It's a, a Samsung Galaxy Note 4. Same kind of situation, right? Samsung is a premium retailer among Android devices, but same kind of deal. They're taking this operating system from Android. They're customizing it to the device. Compare that to iPhone 8 Plus, all Apple end-to-end, closed-sourced, closed system. They own the hardware. They own the firmware. It's a very different world between what's in my left hand and what's in my right hand. What's not different about either of these devices in my hand is that they both have GPS. They both have Bluetooth. They both have Wi-Fi and 4G and LTE. Um, they both can install apps from arbitrary locations. They have photos, they have videos, they have my contacts, they have my text messages, they have my email messages. They potentially have work emails if you're connecting to Exchange. Um, they have everything, right? And it's the, it's the same device, entirely different operating systems, but 
that's something that I think users don't have the awareness on. And so, right. um, so one of the, you know, and I've done a lot of research on this, but as you were talking about it, it kind of popped into my head a little bit is, um, are we, you know, going to be hitting a time? So because my wife has Samsung and I have LG, um, I notice certain differences. I mean, Android's not Android everywhere and the way they wrap them up and, um, you know, put a face on them is different. Mm -hmm. And if we, uh, you know, threw Google into the question with one of their Pixel phones, that's yep. probably, from their point of view, one of the purest forms. Um, but, you know, I have to wonder about Android, if, if different vendors potentially have more secure versions of Android or... Uh, as you were chatting there, I, I did a quick search on, you know, for a period of time to get more accepted in the enterprise. Um, Samsung was pushing something they called safe. Uh, it was Samsung approved for enterprise doing a little search on it. I don't know if they still use that acronym or not, but their, their point initially was talking about um you know, making things more, uh, you know, secure for the enterprise. But yeah. in the in the end, I think safe really ended up being um, a an, a way to say offer up hooks for some of the mobile device mm -hmm. management folks like Mobile Iron and people like that to be able to gather data or information or manage and monitor things. So, um, sorry, throwing a lot at you there, but yeah, no. No, it's, it's a great call out, which is that um, now when we're looking within the ecosystem of Android, what is more reputable and closer to the enterprise spec? And if you, um, if you go back to the issue with the devices that came, quote unquote, pre-installed with malware from China, um, and you look at the list of all the manufacturers that were listed, notice that companies like Samsung and LG were not on that list, right? Mm -hmm. So... It's a good thing you're calling out Samsung because they're probably one of the top of the line brands when it comes to a pretty close to enterprise experience for Android, right? Also keep in mind though, like you brought up a great point too, which is that these user interfaces are completely different, right? Samsung has their own user interface that sits on top of Android. And I don't remember what it's called, but that's why a Samsung phone looks different than a Google Pixel, right? Google mm -hmm. Pixel is the pure Android implementation. Samsung's running their own layer on top of the existing Android app, uh, operating system. So you have another layer of user interface and potential things to you know take place with a device like this. Um, so the safe implementation does sound interesting. Um, the area that I was curious about too, and this is, this will be research for post-show notes is I know at the end of life, when I was using this device, um, they were issuing, even though they weren't issuing new firmware, like going from Android six to seven, for example, they were issuing monthly security updates as like these Knox patch updates. And so mm -hmm. The fact that they started doing monthly security updates was an example that, oh, maybe Samsung's up in their game and the carriers are getting on board with that. Um, so I, I definitely agree here. Like, how can I tell which devices are going to be more reputable in the space? I think I think it's safe to say your, your mainline devices like your Samsung and your LG and your Google um, OEM devices, those are going to be the types of devices that behave more like an iPhone when we talk about hardware security. Um, however, 
you know, at the end of the day, it's still things like app collusion, real possibility, um, things like the cloak and dagger where they're going to deploy an application that you're not even going to see it. Doesn't matter who the manufacturer is, whether it's Samsung or otherwise, um, you're at risk for that type of attack, right? Um, so those are two pretty major callouts. And in fact, um, I was really curious about this because you know most people think as um, spying or or data exfiltration or malware on these phones, whether it's for advertising purposes or otherwise, they think, oh, like this is something that the attackers want to keep hush hush. Well, I found this website that has made a business out of it called uh, flexispy.com. And they literally sell a product that is to spy on any Android phone with unique monitoring so that the user on the phone has no idea. Um, I have zero idea what the real like motive here is, but they claim anyway that its purpose is for doing things like tracking employees, protecting children. That's when you know that you really got a you know <laughs> yellow light, right? Maybe a red light, but definitely a yellow light. Um, and the third reason they call in their advertising sales pitch is to quote, know everything. Um, so this went like, <laughs> if this was a traffic light signal, track employees, green light, protect children, yellow light, know everything, red light in that order. Um, but yes. like now people are not even hiding the fact that, yeah, we can give you this great premium Android monitoring package that, you know, we have a 1-800 number you can call to get 24-7 support on how we can we can help your Android spying habits, right? So, I mean, it's it's ridiculous, honestly. Um, but it just goes to kind of all these foundational things we've talked about here, which is that this platform is a little bit more Swiss cheesy than most folks want to admit. And, like, that's, that's a scary situation, not in the sense that, like, you know, um, not that you're necessarily actively have malware installed or have something like this. But like, think of the reality of like, honestly, in today's age, I'm more concerned of my IOT and my body devices than I am of my desktop, right? What does my desktop do? It sits at home. It waits for me to come back that hour before bed to cherish and love it for the hour that it's worth. And then that's all I get out of it, right? And then on the weekend, what, maybe I spin up a game of Elite Dangerous or I go play a League of Legends, right? Like the business value of targeting home users on their desktops or even their laptops for that matter has gone down substantially. Um, Not just because of the phones, let's be clear, because of the cloud, right? Where's all my data now? It's sitting on the cloud. It's not Mm -hmm. necessarily sitting on the local desktop device. So the targets have moved. So you know, when we talk about, I want to hack Windows 7, I want to hack Windows 10, that was the hot and hip thing to do five years ago. But today, um, I'd take a, if I were a malicious person, I would take a phone over a desktop any day um, if it was for the purposes of gathering data about a user or, you know, like uh, even even with desktops, when we talk about like, I want to build a botnet, I want to build a a black network, any of these things, like even servers are more attractive to do that now than desktops. Server, it's always on, it's always running. Desktop, uh, when you decide to turn it off, guess what? It's no longer participating in the botnet. Um, So I think 
this, I will close this thread down because I think we've hit it on this show enough, but suffice to say, desktop is, I think, going to be the dying focus of malware. That's mm-hmm. not to say that Microsoft should go take a nap and call it a day for their security patches. It's just to say that some of the intrinsic value in these mobile devices are um, much more valuable in this day and age for the types, you know, if I have a pacemaker that's emitting data to my healthcare provider and it's got a firmware bug in it, well, great. What if someone hacks my heart? Like, it sounds ridiculous, but like, go look at insulin pumps that have um, Mm -hmm. malware in them where you can inject someone and take them out, right? So these are the types of things where it's like, I see a phone is almost as personal a device as a pacemaker or a insulin pump. It's it's that one level removed where it's not a critical life or death function. Like, is my heart pumping? Is my sugar in my blood? But it's pretty close after that. It's you know oh, yeah. we're we're putting our lives on these phones, right? So uh, I I live in the Twin Cities area. Medtronic's a big. Uh, uh, employer up here. And if you go through, uh, Medtronic is constantly hiring security folks by modality, uh, next door neighbor just got a pacemaker and, and they talked about the hack function on there. Um, when you mentioned the flexi spy and I don't want to drag the conversation too much off technology, but these are, you know, once again, this kind of gets back to a bit of this of, you know, there's uh, un- there's unfortunately, you know, and, and if you just turn on the news these days uh, uh, of of a lot of the um, sexual harassment and and things that are going on right now, th- what what you touch on with this flexi spy type of app is um, you'll note in the advertising for all of these is is it's all um, you know with permission and whatever. Right. This is one of the most common things of um, you know that pops up where girlfriend, boyfriend break up, boyfriend has access to girlfriend's phone prior to break up, puts app on her phone without her knowing it, and now he sees everything. And and you know so kind of a different track and what we're talking about but it is now i have something or this person has something on their phone that they didn't want on their phone uh and you know so it, it is to your point uh about um you know mobile devices are our lives and they're with us all the time they're our major form of communication all of our data and things move through them and um you know so kind of from a personal basis there, I think, you know, people just need to be aware of handing your phone to someone you want to say you trust. You know, there's certain trust factors around applications and devices and who's putting what on your phone. And it, the parallel it draws to me on a lot of these different things is I'd like to say we can catch all of this stuff up front, but in the end, I always kind of come back to the, is there, you know, are there ways that we can monitor for it? Is there ways we can kind of look for it? Um, you know, I, I would almost look at, is there a way to put my phone in a box and run a scan on it and see, you know, I know this stuff doesn't exist, but in my dream world, you know, uh, you know, throw it in the lab and, and yep. burn it through its courses. And Hey, why is, why is all my text going to this person? And why is all my information right. going to this person? No, it's, uh, it's really interesting. I mean, I think we have the obvious answer for 
this problem. It's just a question of how do we evangelize it to the average guy, right? So when you say, what's the easy way to do this? On one hand, you're like, is network access control the answer? Well, maybe, but if you want to first be able to quantify the problem, uh, almost actually you were joking about it, but it's got a ring of truth to it, which is Treat my phone like a black box. Pretend my phone is in a black box. I know nothing about the phone except what comes out of the black box. Well, I would want to hook up that black box to an internet connection that had no other device on the on the network running except for that phone or whatever. I mean, you could filter it by flow, but I want to see all the specific flows going in and out of that device as observed by a neutral third party. And what I mean mm-hmm. by that is... Um, I mostly trust that your Android network monitor is telling you which applications are actually using network, but imagine the really sinister malware that obfuscates network traffic so it's not being reported in the operating system, right? So you want a neutral third-party observer like a router or whatever to say, I'm seeing this traffic pass through from this device and here's the domains it's contacting, et cetera. Like that's one way of like a traditional black box of figuring out like, hey, what's really going on here? Um, the problem is just because you find out what's going on on the network and you see, ooh, there's something talking that I don't recognize or doesn't seem right here. Are you going to necessarily know by inspecting the network traffic right. what application is emitting that data? Um, and so that's why, like, I don't think the black box thing is the answer for the average guy. And I, and even if it was, I don't think it's the only answer for figuring this out. Problem only gets worse when we talk about internet of things devices, because, you know, how are you going to isolate your fridge? What are you going to really understand that's on your fridge? That's doing something strange. I think the answer there is if it's on your fridge, just unplug the network cable. Like that's the best thing you can do for yourself. There are some things that are sacred in this life, and one of them is food. Like you want to be able to eat in peace. You don't. You don't want your salmon dinner to get hacked. It's just it never ends well. Um, you don't want someone to turn up your freezer stat all the way so that you ruin a perfectly good crockpot meal. Like these are the types of things that matter in life. Um, so do yourself a favor. Just take that temptation away. Unplug the network cable from your refrigerator, and you won't have this problem. Um, I think it's a very uh, much more real problem when you look at things like pacemakers and insulin pumps as now being IoT devices. I mean, what the heck, right? Um, but they are, right? And that's exactly where the healthcare industry is moving towards. They're not moving away from it, right? Like, let's not be, um, let's not be insulated when we think that these are the newer, you know, hipster guys using their high tech insulin pumps. No, this is literally like more and more of the predominant insulin pumps, you can't even buy some of these pumps without the embedded IoT-based capabilities, right? So that's right. just the direction we're moving in. Um, so there's there's some soul-searching to be done there on the industry side. I think on the consumer side, the most obvious thing has always been clear, which is um, if you're a consumer, be realistic about what are the types of budgets you can spend for your devices. Um, the the best way to take a proactive or maybe a pre, I call it a preactive approach, right? 
Proactive implies you're doing something ahead of time. Reactive implies that you're doing something in response to something. Preactive is what I call just smart judgment or smart decision-making, right? So the preactive step you can take here is to make sure that you are doing your, your market research. So if you're going to buy a new phone that's going to sit on your body all day, do the common sense things like, you know, what's the target market? Is it a higher end or a lower end phone? What's the type of hardware that's in it? Like, I know these are things that seem trivial. You just want to play the device so you can, you know, play Candy Crush or whatever it is you do on your phone. Um, but asking those like simple three questions and your preactivate step of, I want a new phone may save you a lot of headache, right? Um, so that's number one. Um, and like, if you look at those types of providers that were on that list, like if you had done some market research, you probably would have had some warm and fuzzy feelings to try and get around um, selecting one of those devices if it was in your price range and within your target market, et cetera. Um, I think the second thing you can do is exactly what you did at the beginning of the show, Kevin, which is, proactive review of what are the applications that I have on my phone and why do I have them on there? I think people install applications that they use once or twice two years ago and they set them and forget them. They allowed the auto updates to go through. They never open it again, but it's auto updating in the background. Like you got to ask yourself at some point when you have 500 applications on your phone, something is wrong. You are not using 500 applications a day. I can guarantee it. I know because I try really hard and I end up using lots of browser tabs and the same three applications all the time. And the rest of the applications, I'm lucky if I use once a month, right? So do, do yourself a favor and like all mantras on this show, do the surface area reduction exercise of uninstalling the stuff that you just don't use. Because chances are, if you don't know what it is, then you really don't know what it is. And that's a much larger large question mark of risk for you than if it's like, oh, I'm using the Microsoft Exchange app every day, or I'm using Safari or Chrome or whatever, right? Like these are apps we know and trust we use every day, et cetera. Do yourself a favor, minimize that. Um, the third thing with the operating system, and this is a little bit, um, shall I say, tricky, is be conscious about what sensors are being used when. I probably know the average guy leaves their GPS roaming flying free all day, right? Unless you're doing a road trip somewhere, like, like there are reasons to have GPS on. There are also reasons where you sit and ask, well, why do I need to leave this radio on? Not only is it a data metric for you, but more importantly, uh, it sucks your battery life. So you can get, there's, I'm giving you multiple incentives to go and reconfigure your phone, but like Bluetooth, when you use Bluetooth, uh, when I work out and I want to use my AirPods or when I'm driving in the car. Awesome. So when you go in the car, turn on the radio. When you leave the car, turn the radio off. Um, same thing with Wi-Fi. When do I use Wi-Fi? Uh, when I'm inside the house and my 4G signal sucks. Awesome great time to use Wi-Fi. Do you need to use it when you're out on the road or when you're sitting in a coffee shop? No, probably not. Turn it off, right? So common sense things. Um, even if you do all the common sense things, I'm not saying that's a mitigation for the underlying operating system defects or otherwise, but these are the types of average guy situational awareness things we can do in the interim of having the Panacea application. Um, I also recommend, you know, 
get a smart application for doing malware scanning. Um, I call this reactive security, but at least it's better than nothing. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff, so I'm not going to talk about it on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I know for Android, there's Lookout, there's AVG antivirus. I mean, there's gobs of stuff. Go yep. find something that makes you warm and fuzzy. Go install it. Have a have a field day. Um, that's that's another one. Um, and, and, you know, last thing is like, keep your phone up to date. I can't tell you how many people say they don't want to update their phone because they're worried about breaking it. And I think that is the most <laughs> awesome answer I've ever heard. Like, I don't want to update my phone because I'm worried about it breaking, which I can totally understand because after, you know, decades of Microsoft, we should all have that fear in our hearts. And thank God Microsoft got out of the phone industry when they did, because imagine having to deal with Microsoft Windows update patches on your phone still. Like it's just, it's a, it's a scary dream you want to wake up from. Um, But, you know, same, same thing here. Like at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself, like, how many updates for my phone have I skipped where somewhere buried in the readme and changelog notes, it says fix major security bug X, Y, and Z. (laughs) Um, So these are the things that make users a much larger attack surface. And, you know, what a surprise that many of the things I'm saying also applied to desktops, right? Um, I think sensors is the new one that the average guy just doesn't really get because they just, you know, it's not part of their situational awareness, right? Uh, Especially when you, let's talk about other IoT devices that I'm concerned about, my smartwatch. Um, And this is really heresy when you hear this, but I use an Android watch, smartwatch with an Apple iPhone. Like that should not be allowed. How dare you? How dare me, right? Um, But Android just came out with this update. Uh, This is a Moto 360, by the way. And they just came out with about mm, three months ago with the Android 2 software upgrade. And honest to goodness, it brings this into very close competition with the more premium Apple watch at half the price, right? So again, another example of like, I chose this device because of the price point and the level of features I got for that price point. Um, But it's like the same thing. Like, are you keeping your Apple smartwatch up to date? Cause, or your, or your moto, because guess what? The sensors do not just exist on this phone. Get that out of your head. This independently has GPS. This independently has a Bluetooth radio. Um, and in some cases, now now smartwatches independently have their own LTE radio. This independently runs its own Linux operating system that has Android OS on top of it. And if you go and you use the version two of the Android or of the Android smartwatch on here, it has its own installation of the Google Play Store. So you can literally install apps that only come on this device directly connecting to the Wi-Fi. So for all intents and purposes, I'm wearing another cell phone on my body, two cell phones, right? Um, So all things to keep in mind when we're talking about what can the average guy do to have some more awareness around this. So uh, one one other, and I'm jumping around a little bit here, but different things pop into my head as, as I hear you talk, I, other ideas pop up. I get that a lot. <laughs> um, so, you know, earlier this year, um, uh, ISPs. Uh, so we all know that our Gmail, our email is read by, you know, if you have Gmail, they're reading through it, but not really reading it. They're skimming it for information to focus advertising on you. Um, our browsers do the same kind of deal. And earlier this year, the you know the function came up of ISPs want to do the same thing, and and I had some pretty deep concerns about that 
but then the discussion we're having right now was one that kind of hit me of, well, wait a minute. There is one area where my, so personally, I, I, I'm Comcast at home and my phone is AT&T. So the majority of my um, compute or my communication is through one of those two. You know, those two folks are monitoring most of what happens with me mm -hmm. and my devices. Mm -hmm. And kind of getting back to this idea of where's my data going? Who, you know, who are my devices really talking to? That all of a sudden popped up in, in my head to say, well, boy, if AT&T was kind of watching, you know, it, it turns into sort of a big data analytics type of question of if, if your ISP and your phone provider were basically connecting the dots between your applications, your uh, devices and the destination of these things. Um, and when you were talking about it earlier, Something like that did pop up at one time where a friend was using some kind of a tool and said, hey, something in my system is talking to India on a regular basis and and wasn't sure, you know, got instantly freaked out. And we quickly come to find is he had flipped on something in one of his applications that uh, was supposed to um, send user experience information. And of course, it was, go I believe it was actually around an HP printer and it was going to India because that's where the data center was, where the information was. So to your point, you know, if we had this data unfiltered, we'd all freak out like crazy because you wouldn't, you know, you'd see these things, you wouldn't recognize the source, you wouldn't recognize the destination. But then I thought of it from, you know, the point of view of some of your providers, they could almost offer this back to you as a, a, a you know, and I don't think they would want the responsibility of being a security provider for you, but it just seems like there'd be a wealth of information that people managing and watching the pipes, so to say, could glean from this to, to look at, hey, we just ran through and everybody who has this phone seems to have some traffic going to this spot and that doesn't seem to make sense. Yeah, well, we already know that internet service providers are selling your data i mean go mm -hmm. go read through any terms of service for verizon or otherwise and you're going to find it right um actually what you're bringing up is a very interesting point which is actually have a force for good moment and use it beyond advertising and do some isp crowdsourcing on the data itself to say here's some common indicators that we see that maybe customers that we are interfacing with are getting malware from the same thing and we can track this down etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm -hmm. um, i think because they want to have the illusion that your data is private even though they're selling it to third parties um, for advertising um, they want to keep that illusion alive and well so that's probably right. a primary reason why they don't do that um, the the general thing here um, is really like, and it's interesting too, because I don't know how the ISP privacy laws in terms of service differ between a cell phone carrier's internet service provider and a, like a, a home internet service provider, right? Like does the Verizon files, the Comcast, the Cox communications, do those types of ISP agreements look different than what I get if I'm surfing on an LTE connection, right? Um, but certainly um, 
we just spent an hour talking about the security and the trustworthiness of the devices ourselves we're carrying. Of course, the medium in which that data is carried at the end of the day is equally worthy under scrutiny. And I mean, we've talked about this at length in some of our earlier shows, but um, I think it, to your point, goes to say that like your cell phone, for example, exists in this transient state where like your desktop probably going to be using one ISP um, for quite a long time, right? So yep. they're going to build a pretty interesting profile based on that device's usage history. And at the end of the day, your device is beholden to the trustworthiness of that third-party intermediate that you're trusting. Um, with the cell phone, it's an interesting beast because, you know, lots of users are not only using their LTE network, which connects to different cell phone towers, but um, they're also connecting the gobs and gobs of different wireless access points, which are different internet service providers. So unlike desktops, it has a much larger diversification of what the internet service providers are for the device, um, which raises questions like, as I'm connecting and going through my journey with this device, how do the privacy models and the terms of service change in ways that I'm not even familiar, right? Um, so again, another good thing to be looking out for when we talk about uh, the, the I guess, the third-party security elements related to the device. Right. So, Jim, you've been so silent. I feel totally terrible. Yeah. Kevin, I just have this great synergy and bond about this topic. Um, where, how do you feel about it? Well, when I, I knew I had you guys on tonight. I knew it was going to be an easy night. I got to sit back, <laughs> drink some wine, enjoy the conversation. I, I guess... You know, uh, we mentioned a few things. I guess I come back, you know, for the average user. I'm an iPhone user. Are there some things I should be doing today? We, we talk about this in both Home Gadget Geeks and Christian, you and I have talked about it here. But on November 21st, 2017, sounds like Android, I probably need to be a little more proactive if I'm an Android user. Those attacks have probably stepped up. If it's iPhone, probably not as much, but I should still watch for things. Anything else you haven't mentioned, Christian or or Kevin, from an average user's you know perspective? Any tips or tricks or tools I should be using to just kind of keep track of stuff? You know, Kevin, I loved your black box idea. It'd be great to kind of just throw the phone in and let it go, and then do some analytics around it. Like, all right, where's this stuff going? You know, there are tools that do that. They're just so hard to read. You know, you, you get so much data off your phone. There's really no good. Kevin, any any good tools you know of that that you'd point people to? Yeah, I'm uh, honestly I'm kind of in the early phases of doing discovery around tools. Um, you know, there's a few of them out there. This PacketFence.org is you know a, a nice open source kind of function. Um, you know, so I, I don't know that I have any recommendations right now. Um, if we have some time towards the end here, I did want to, um, since Christian talked about it in the past, I've, I've kind of waffled back and forth on home firewalls, uh, enjoyed the conversation you guys had in the past about uh, Bitdefender's Box product, have been patiently waiting for Box version 2 to come out. Um, so, you know, kind of heading in those directions. There you have it. Here it is. Uh, I'll, I'll talk so it shows up on screen. For your, those watching the video, you can see, not plugged in at the moment. <laughs> and uh, so I got it wrapped up kind of nicely. I was hoping this little box would be a really cool front end. Didn't work so well with the Google on Hub. Uh, oh, and that, yeah, yeah, that was that. It didn't play really well. I, I, haven't, I had all intents and purposes of coming back to it. 
Christian, this is one of those things I think the average guy really needs. It's yeah. just a good plug it in the front of your network. I mean, it yep. comes off your router. I mean, it comes yep. off your modem. Yep. You go here, then you go to your, your wireless router, right? And, and I think that was the one we covered one or two shows ago, right? Yeah, well, which was like a year ago. So <laughs> thanks, Jim. <laughs> thanks, Jim. It's just it's qu- Jim, it's quality, not quantity. Yeah, right there quality. we go, Kevin. Right on. Right on. I get you. I get you. But I th- I think, Kevin, those are the things that that I keep looking for. You're right. The box box V2 was announced at CES at the beginning of the year, and we haven't seen it yet. Yep. Um I I, did, I, I the I great thing the about the box, year. by the way. The great thing about this box, I got a one year as many Bitdefender licenses as I wanted for a hundred bucks license, which was awesome. I mean, I'm going to see if I can hold on to that forever because for that price point, I mean, a hundred bucks, all the licenses, as many PCs as I run here at the studios, like that's an awesome deal. But yeah, I'm, I'm hoping for more of a front end. I think that's where we got to get. Yep. So uh, through Twitter, Bitdefender did respond to me here a couple of weeks ago. Um, They're projecting a December release for V2. So that's yeah. the first time I've heard them dedicate down. Um, when you did mention kind of a device-related thing, so um, when it comes to, and I, I, I hate to keep using the, I don't, I don't use it from a disparaging point of view, but the cheap Chinese tablet kind of functionality. Um, I have a, a tablet. Uh, it's from a company called TechLast, which is is a brand name that's popular with uh, uh, Chewy, TechLast, Onda um, in these groups. And the reason I picked up this tablet, it, it's a it's a, a, a dual boot, Windows and Android. Um, I, I don't know that I've ever ran it in Android. Um, my major purchase for this tablet was uh, a four by three aspect ratio on the screen, which I find to be a nicer tablet aspect ratio for reading. It's like a 9.7 inch screen. It's an, it's an iPad wannabe they even call it a t-pad um uh but i use it every night I, I read on it i do a little bit of browsing on it but when i set it up uh of course it's it's running windows 10 um i i did not uh set up uh, OneDrive on it i i did not want this tablet to have access to any of my OneDrive stuff for two reasons it's too much data to bring down to a tablet and i didn't want this tablet accessing that way um i do know you know it's it's purely a consumption device i'm not uh you know uh, um, i didn't allow it to be uh you know the the network security things of letting it be active on my network discoverable on my network said no to all those kinds of things so does that hinder its usage um potentially but once again it gets back to what's your use case and my use case is this is a consumption device um, I've got a whole bunch of uh, um, uh, ebook uh, ebooks in a library here that I can download to it. Um, Overdrive works on it, so I can download from that point of view. So it's reading, it's a little bit of social media, it's a little bit of browsing. So I've tried to lock it down. Um, and actually, uh, I, in my home network setup, I have a separate guest Wi-Fi function and this tablet only goes over guest wi-fi so i don't let it on my main wi-fi either 
So as I'm saying all that, if I'm listening to this podcast, I'm 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 probably going to say, "Hey, Kev, why would you have a device in your house that you don't trust?" And uh, I, I tend to have the smart aleck response of, "Well, trust is earned, not given, and this little tablet's got to earn my trust before it can live on the regular network." But, uh, um, you know, I. I've had a decent experience with it, but yet I, I'm not, you know, I think that falls into the category as Christian was saying earlier is I think it is a good idea to go through your devices and delete applications you're not using. It frees up space on the device. It cleans things up. Um, when you mentioned the security tools on Android devices, I forget the name of the one that's on my LG phone here, but it does a nice little thing of checking apps as they get loaded in. It cleans up loose files that are hanging around and a couple of times it's gotten rid of things that I kind of looked at like that's that's weird that that would be on there I wonder why that's on there so um, I, I think those are all things you can do um, I, I think as Christian said a few minutes ago you got it you, you you really I don't want to make technology too hard but the set it and forget it idea uh, you know that's where you get in trouble yeah, no, right on. Christian, um, we have a bunch of links just for folks who are listening and they want to come back. We've jumped around a little bit and we haven't specifically nailed down kind of the links that you guys have talked about. But both Kevin and Christian have both done a really nice job of getting a lot of helpful links that you might want to head over to the show notes, head over to the averageguy.tv slash CF for Cyber Frontier 040 for this show. And uh, yep. you'll get some... Even some of the things, even some of the things we haven't talked about uh, are on there as well. Christian, any advice you'd give uh, in that arena of you gave a bunch, but hey, I've given I've been giving advice all night, man. I think I'm going to give hot topics and we're going to roll out in the sunset feeling uh, secure and safe here. But um, a Gallup poll came out this month on November 9th that cybercrime tops Americans' worries when we talk about the different types of crime that they could experience. 67% of Americans worry about hackers stealing their personal information, and 66% worry about identity theft. And Americans are the ones that uh, most frequently report being victims of cybercrime. So there you have it. We have a residential uh, Gallup expert on the on the call here tonight. Yeah, so. Um, we're citing data from there, uh, but basically it goes to show that this phone problem kind of feeds into this larger statistic that Gallup has apparently measured for us. Um, so that's pretty interesting. Um, also, I'll, yeah. I'll also mention Christian, just I'll pimp the Gallup podcast. We have, a, yeah. we have the Gallup podcast now. I'm not on it, but I am behind the scenes. I actually record every single one of those, one of the roles that I have that there at Gallup. And we've had some really interesting topics. If you like the kind of the political data side of what Gallup's doing, uh, you might want to subscribe to it. The Gallup podcast, Sweet. just search it. Yeah. Sweet. And advertisement segment. That yeah, was awesome. Why not? So well done. Hey, I gave you the hook and you took it. Like you did. nice, nicely done. Um, Second thing that we didn't get a chance to cover tonight, we'll probably punt till next week, but um, today on November 21st, 2017, Uber announced that they paid off the hackers that hacked in and breached all 57 million of their customer data. They paid them $100,000 to keep quiet about it and to make the problem go away. This is a case study of what not to do when you get breached as a company. Um, if Uber already hasn't had enough problems with their CEO and their other PR, this will surely put them in crisis. Lyft is probably sitting there with their hands curled and feeling very happy right now that they're going to sweep into the growing uh, PR epidemic for Uber and clearly their growing um, crisis in morality. 
Um, that's today's segment on how to be moral in an age of cybersecurity. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll probably cap it there because there's just too much to talk Whoa. about here. Um, Kevin, I appreciate you being on tonight. Uh, we did a lot of banter. We did a lot of good stuff. Hopefully there's some interesting content for folks. Um, but we, uh, we'll see where this takes us going into CF 41. Sounds good. Kevin, Thanks for having me. Kevin, any final questions for, for Christian? Anything we didn't cover? Did we get what you I were agree. hoping? I think we nailed them all. About? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of good, a lot of good stuff. A lot of good uh, information. After you, uh, I've got a bunch of notes in front of me to follow up on. So uh, it's all good stuff. Christian, they're bantering for a a, a, a blockchain cyber frontiers. So maybe you should study oh. up on the blockchain a little bit. And, oh. uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I have someone in my circle that would be very interested in that from a uh, regulation standpoint too. Um, but no. I can hear I can hear the war drums for that. I I mm. would uh, well we'll talk, Jim. That's that's interesting. Yeah, uh, no, a lot of conversations. We've been kind of covering it a little bit. Uh, of course, we had Edward Weininger on here. Um, uh, Weininger, sorry, a long time ago, and he'd been talking about this, and all of a sudden, in the last six months, it's just blown up. Of course, with Bitcoin being at eighty, eighty two hundred dollars today uh, as a price, which is just ridiculous, by the way. It's that's not ridiculous; it's stupid. Like there is no valuation in the world that can support that, but it is. It is what it is, and so we've been getting a lot of uh, getting a lot of feedback. We've been covering it kind of from a front end. How do you mine? What can you do? What kind of video cards do you need? Some of those kinds of things. Uyghur's been doing a nice job. I need to get him back on the show. But I wanted to kind of come back to the back end of it here on Cyber Frontiers and kind of talk about the back end of why yeah. and what folks are doing. Yep. I, uh, in pre-show, I mentioned you guys. I've been involved in all three now of the storage coin options that are mm -hmm. out there. You know, I'm a home server guy. You kind of yep. are too, Christian. Yep. And there's some interesting offerings. All three of both Saya, Storage, and Burst are all covering this block, this idea of storage uh, using the blockchain, all from different angles, which is really cool. Some are breaking it into shards. Some are keeping it complete. And then... First is doing complete. They're they're not doing storage. They're doing mining based on on storage that you have on hard drives, which is really really interesting. So, Christian, be thinking about that. We've got some good topics there. If you got some experts on the blockchain, it'd be good to have you. Get, get yeah. Also on the smart contracts too. There's a lot of interesting cybersecurity concepts related to the uh, smart contract and how companies are trying to use blockchain to. Um, stay current with the way finances yeah. are done. So, so I, he I heard this and then we'll, we'll wrap it. Butterball now is tracking every turkey in the United States that was grown <laughs> here and sold. Classic. The, the turkeys now have a six-digit identifier on Classic. them. You can come to their website, put the number in, and it will tell you because they've stored this all on the on the blockchain, on their own private blockchain for this. This, I think, was a hackathon idea at Butterball, which is, which is I think this is really cool. So you can track the turkey all the way back to where it was grown, who the farmer was, what it was fed, because the farmers keep track of all the feed in this by turkey as well. And so they can tell you all the history of the turkey as you're consuming it. Oh, what's coming up on this Thursday? As we're recording it Tuesday, Thursday is Thanksgiving here in the United States. And of course, in the U.S., we get really crazy about our Thanksgiving. I don't know <laughs> what the heck that is. It's that turkey. It's that turkey. Gets ramped up every year here, but but the blockchain, which it's a great 
it's a ledger, right? It's a big, gigantic ledger and a great, uh, a great way to think beyond. I think today when people think about the blockchain, they think about Bitcoin only. And there's a whole bunch of great uses for it that I think it's here to stay. If I was an aspiring computer science student at the University of Maryland, I would certainly be thinking, how do I get to know more about the blockchain? I think it's going to be one of those things that's uh, going to be. Do, do, do you agree with me, Christian? Do you think so? I think so. I think so. I'm I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I certainly think that we're um, there's a whole nother show on the death of the paper dollar and how digital currency is gonna yeah come come head to head with cybersecurity as well. Yeah. So. Well, we'll we'll get some we'll get some subjects lined up. I I do think Bitcoin is not the answer. I will just say that that Bitcoin will not be the future of digital currency. It, it was the market disruptor, however. It, it was. No, it's the it's the early adopter. It is what broke through. It's not scalable in its current form and we we're seeing that now. Today I just tried to do some trading with it 22 hours. It took 22 hours for my for my financial, you know, my bit to reconcile. Well, currently, e, uh, Newegg, which allows you to do transactions in Bitcoin, is only giving you 15 minutes before they they throw you out. Well, 22 hours, 15 minutes, that's a problem, mm. right? Yep. Um, so there have been some things. We can talk about this more in future cyber, secure, or cyber frontiers. So very cool. Uh, Kevin, thanks for coming on. Christian, great to see you. I know people will be happy to see you back. We'll try and yeah. get another one of these scheduled for the next couple of weeks. And great as to soon see you as the show's well. over, we're going to look at some dates. So if you're listening to this on the recorded version of it, yeah, I know. We're, we're, I say this every time, and then we go six months, but we will try. <laughs> we will try. We appreciate you guys listening, those, uh, the, 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 uh, the four, five, six hundred of you that have stayed subscribed to it. So thanks uh, again for that. We'll remind everyone, theaverageguy.tv, powered by, powered by Maple Grove Partners, both web hosting and media. Get secure, reliable, high-speed hosting for people that you know and you trust. Of course, that's to Christian and those guys. Gary's one of them. Over at Maple Grove Partners, head out to maplegrovepartners.com. Plans start as little as 10 bucks. We welcome your questions, comments, and contributions. This kind of happened. This show happened because I think Kevin reached out to us and said, hey, I got some questions. And we said, why don't you come on? And it took us a while to get it done, but Kevin's here because he did that. Send oh. me an email, jim at theaverageguy.tv. In this case, it's really better to send Christian an email, christian at theaverageguy.tv. He will dialogue. Why don't you copy me on that as well, just so we know what's going on. We'll dialogue a little bit about it and uh, and then uh, get you on a show. It'd be great to have you on if you got some questions. Christian, I think it'd be really cool if somebody, if we had a whole bunch of listeners come on with AMA type stuff where they could come mm -hmm. on, have a focused question for you, and uh, and we work through it. That would be a cool way to do a show. I think Christian would love to do that. So if you got an idea, Jim at TheAverageGuy.tv. Christian at TheAverageGuy.tv. Send us a note and we'll put you in. We, like I say at the end of uh, Home Gadget Geeks, we're live, but we're never live consistently. So you have to watch the Twitter account at Jay Collison. And I literally gave you an hour tonight. And Gary, thanks for coming out tonight. We, we got one <laughs> in the mix. Boom. Good to have Gary here uh, this evening hanging out with us. But we appreciate you listening. We'll be back in uh, hopefully two or three weeks with another Cyber Frontiers. And with that, we'll say good night, everybody. Good night. Good night, everybody.